This is another episode directed by Les Landau and includes John Delancey. So I admit I automatically like it, even though if we look at all of the breadth of the Q episodes, this one probably lands closer to the middle. It's not as bad as uh, Q-Pid, I think. You know, the the weird one <laughs> with uh, Vosh. And it's certainly not as bad as Q-Less or Q in the Gray. But I do still find this one enjoyable, even though it does have some issues. One of the biggest problems with this episode, in my opinion, is that it wraps up just a little bit too neatly, and that, in my opinion, too many creative people disagreed on what should be done with Q himself. He is simultaneously written to be a terrible person, and yet someone who could interact with others well under the right circumstances. They just kind of can't seem to make up their mind on that. And I think this is one of the problems with any kind of long, long-standing show like this. Q himself has been written in three general ways over the course of Star Trek history. The agent of the continuum, the imp, you know, Loki, and the secret advocate of humanity, right? The person who's trying to help us because he knows us better than we know ourselves. That whole thing, right? Now, I admit, I like the third of those best personally, but it's not like we have to completely divest these from each other, but we do need to decide his ultimate motivations, and I feel like this inconsistency leads to some of the problems when it comes to Q as a character. Lord knows John Delancey's amazing. I mean, John Delancey made me even enjoy bits of Q in the Grave, for God's sake, so that's pretty impressive, but... I, I really feel like too often it feels like it's difficult for me as an analyzer, as a theory crafter, and as a geek to really divest into the character when the people writing him can't decide on his character, right? Like if we're to take, it's, it's, it's the old age-old problem of any Trek fan. If you just take everything that is Star Trek on screen, there are so many inconsistencies that it, it's just, Right? I mean, even something incredibly basic as beaming through the shields is a big deal. And every now and again is a major plot point. And then every now and again you can just do it casually as if it's nothing. Because they can't decide, they can't codify their own lore. And that causes problems, especially long term. So we just kind of have to cherry pick. It's something I've said often about the old Star Wars EU, the Extended Universe. Uh, I, I, I suppose I don't have to explain that. Most of you probably know what the EU is, or was. Um, I mention that because how many people do you know who took all of the EU as canon? You took all of that into your theory crafting. I would be legitimately surprised if anyone raised their hands on that one, because most everyone I know and everyone I've talked to and everyone I've asked this question on my show and in person has answered the same thing. Of course not. We cherry-pick. We say, well, this is canon, and this is canon, and this is canon, and we accept all this stuff, either because it appeals to us or because it coheses with itself better than other things, right? Some things just don't fit, and we have the same problem with Star Trek. I could look at certain things and say, well, they shouldn't be able to do that because of this episode in Season 1. But then I think, well, that was Season 1, and they didn't really know what they were doing yet, and they hadn't laid down the rules yet, so I'm willing to eject that bit of Season 1 from canon in favor of something in Season 4, for example. And that leads us to the problem with Q. The interpretations of Q are many. I've heard many people debate his character over the years. I tend to think of him as someone who basically is... Hmm, let's call him one of the more moderate of the Q. Hear me out. I'm going somewhere with this, I swear. Of amongst the Q continuum, I consider him to be one of the more moderates, probably only out, outpaced by Quinn himself, and someone who is legitimately interested in helping other races, but 
is immeasurably bored and therefore wants to do so in a way that appeals to him, a.k.a. messing with us. And similarly, if he ends up being an agent of the continuum, which happens several times, he does so in a method that appeals to him. Make sense? Probably my biggest sources of evidence for this are... God, I can never think of the name of the episode. The one with Picard and the heart, you know. Uh, inner Light? I want to, no, that's not Inner Light. See, I always get Inner Light and the other one confused. And I can never think of which one is which. But anyways, that one. I'm going to get like 70 comments telling me the name of the episode now. Hang on, hang on. Let me just look it up. God damn, you're going to make me look this up. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Let's just do this. All episodes with Q in it. I've had this problem for years. I, I can never think of the name of the episode. <sighs> Tapestry. I always get Inner Light and Tapestry mixed up, uh, probably because I love both episodes. But anyways, I digress. <sighs> Tapestry and Q-Who and All Good Things are all my evidence, basically, that Q, well, he likes to amuse himself and he wants us to push for it. He's not willing to carry us there. In other words, he has a more, and I know this sounds extremely weird, parental perspective on it, that he is not willing to completely baby us to the point where we won't grow up, you know, the whole bloody nose comment in Q-Who comes to mind. But he does want us to grow up. I mention this because one of the things I've always got the opinion of is that the continuum is not in favor of that idea. That the continuum is in favor of the concept of the status quo. And as weird as this may sound, that makes a bizarre amount of sense to me. I've talked before about how... If you sift something long enough, if a system exists long enough, norms naturally evolve from within this system until it gets to the point where certain things kind of rise to the fore. Uh, there's a proper term for this, and I can't think of it. Please forgive me. Um, but it's a social as well as a mathematical uh, concept. And the theory here is that a race that develops for, you know, just and develops and develops and develops and develops and develops will reach a point where they basically reach stagnation, where they have completely plateaued in what they can do going forward in terms of social, cultural, economic, military, technological, and of course, you know, mentality in terms of their philosophy. How far they can go has plateaued. They're stuck there. And I've always felt that that's the continuum. That they're one of the original races of Star Trek, and they just developed and developed and developed until they hit that ceiling, and they've been stuck there. And based on things we see, Death Wish is a great example of this, but also basically any episode where the continuum is involved, the organization is involved, we see they tend to have that automatic inclination towards keeping things the way they are. And if things want to change, well, they're going to have to really prove that they have a right to change, right? So... That leads us to this episode, and I'm finally going to start talking about this episode, because I always felt that Q was basically being punished in the same general manner that Quinn was. You are upsetting the status quo. Stop it. Oh. <laughs> God dang it. There we go. And now you're human, right? <sighs> I also have to admit that the dilemma of this planet is interesting, one thing I find curious is they never explain why. Why is this moon just suddenly leaving its orbit? This is a very recent issue, I remind you. And they mention that it's, it's very rapidly happening. They have uh, 29? 29 hours before this moon goes... It's an asteroid, not a full moon. It's a satellite, but you get my point. They have 29 hours before this sucker basically causes an extinction event on this planet. 
that's a big deal. And that's weird for something to happen so out of nowhere. It's, it's, it's there so so many people, including the viewers, are like, well, obviously Q's behind this because that just doesn't happen. Yet, funnily enough, they never explain what actually happened. Now, in my opinion, I do have a theory on this. I think that this was a test, but not by Q himself, by the Continuum. I think they set the moon on this path, and then they, knowing Q would pick humanity, dumped him on the Enterprise. And it's like, alright, let's see how they deal with this. Let's see how he deals with this. Now, I know this isn't fully backed up by the episode, but I'll get more to that later when we start talking about Q2. So, we go... uh, This is actually an episode I like to use when it comes to explaining the difference between early, well, mid-TNG and late, well, early Voyager. You know, the difference between a technobabble problem and a technobabble solution and a real problem with a technological solution. We have a asteroid which is out of orbit and will eventually degrade its orbit until it collides with the planet. That's bad. Anyone can tell you that's bad, even if they don't understand just how bad it is. Funnily enough, this episode goes out of its way to explain just how bad that will be. The amount of initial impact, the amount of initial devastation, the waves and how bad those are going to be, the earthquakes and how bad that's going to be, the new ice age that might be caused. I mean, this is an extinction-level event. It doesn't take that large of a mass to collide with a planet to really cause some serious issues. It's one of the reasons that mass drivers are usually forbidden in a lot of different works of science fiction, because they cause a lot of mess. And the solution that they come up with is, well, we got to move the moon back into orbit, but we can't because we don't have enough delta V, which is a real thing. May, may or may not apply in this situation. I suppose that's debatable, since delta V is specifically about the movement of something entering or leaving or changing its lunar orbit, but I suppose, or not lunar, it's wrong word, wrong word, uh, changing its uh, orbital uh, maneuvering. So I suppose that could be applied here. I don't know, I've heard this debated before. I'm not saying it applies or doesn't apply. I'm just saying that because I've heard this debated. Real science. We need to be able to do this. We don't have the kind of thrust and power to do that. And believe it or not, even their solution, which is using made-up science, is still consistent. I've said this so many times. I don't care if you make something up in fiction. I just care if you're consistent with it, if you apply it consistently. And the way they apply warp bubbles and warp fields is consistent with the idea of altering the mass of something, altering something's interaction with the physical plane, which is exactly what they end up doing with this field in order to push the asteroid. Boom! I like that. And it adds to some of the believability of the episode. So, Delancey shows up and he's nude. No, seriously, but by all accounts, Delancey, just they couldn't figure out a way to shoot the scene and have him have clothes on, so he's like, fine, and he just was nude. If you'll notice, the shot where he is nude, there's very few actors on, like, visible there, probably for that specific reason. And you'll notice they immediately get him in clothing. Side note, why is that outfit so ugly? They put him in this really, like, just actively, aggressively ugly-looking outfit. As a, fi- as a side note, if you pay attention to the episode, literally the very first thing Q does when he gets his powers back is puts himself in a classic Starfield uniform, which, funnily enough, looks way better on him, especially the new ones. Um, we've basically distributed the new uniforms throughout the set at this point. You can really tell the obvious giveaway is the belt. If you can see, like, the band around the waist, that's the new uniform, although there's some noticeable differences in the shoulders and the way this uh, the collar area is, too. 
But I'm just saying, the new uniform looks really good on Delancey, and it's like, oh, it's so much better. <laughs> it's always interesting to me, though, that he insists on having that as his particular uh, preferred method of presenting himself. The, the uniform, I mean, the Starfleet uniform. Anyways, oh, a captain, too. <clears throat> so he shows up. There's some great banter, like some really great banter. There's this interesting bit where he says, I've come in this interest of friendship. Okay, maybe just in the fact that you don't hate me. Now, I mention that because later on, uh, they say how he's, how much of a liar he is because, oh, you just came here for protection. I don't know. I always felt like he was kind of open about that. Not completely open. I don't want to completely dismiss him, but he basically flat out said, I mean, hey, sanctuary, right? Like, he says that right at the beginning. So I don't get why this whole, you just came to us for protection thing is really a thing. And it's not like he hasn't actually been trying to actually be a member of the crew in his own incredibly terrible way. But I'll, I'll discuss Q's perspective a little bit more in a bit. I just want to comment really quickly that Worf is awesome. <laughs> what do I have to do to convince you? Die. The way he says that, you could almost tell that Doran just threw himself into that one word so he could say that word as perfectly as he could die. I love that. And then, of course, he drags him, you will walk or I will carry you. No, no, I'd, I'd prefer to walk. And he yammers the whole way down. Funnily enough, if I might be so bold, someone like Q stuck in a human body is basically like being a human. Now, I know that sounds stupid, but what I mean by that is... Humans are not as strong as a gorilla or as maneuverable underwater as a shark or a dolphin or don't have the ability to fly like a bird and we don't have massive teeth like a crocodile and we don't have blah, 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 blah right? We don't have uh, physical advantages. We rely on these to basically cheat and we rely on our ability to communicate. We are intelligent social creatures. That's, that's the advantages of humanity. Um, and I mention that because that's exactly what Q's doing here. He's trying to talk his way around and through this situation because all of the tools, all the advantages he's so used to have been stripped from him. It's a subtle point that I've never heard anyone else comment on, and I don't even know if it was intentional, but I find it fascinating and the implications thereof. Q is still himself. He still has his personality and its many, many flaws, as well as his intellect, experience, and memory but he doesn't have anything else going for him. So what else is he going to do? He's going to talk and he's going to think. Anyways, I just like that. It's a nice little touch. Moving on. So <clears throat> there's this little bit, and can I just say that if for all that there are issues with this episode, I love the little touches. Delancey does some great performances throughout the whole thing, and Delancey and Data are pure gold every time they're on screen together. Especially given that, and I feel like this is on purpose, because this is Les Landau, and this is John Delancey and Brett Spiner, so I, I feel like this is a deliberate thing. I feel like I can trust in the, the, the cred of these creative people. But everyone else treats Q in a fairly standoffish, hostile way. Still polite, and I want you to keep that in mind, because this is a point that's also uh, another underlying point of the episode. Still polite, still kind, you know, they still do feed him. They still do clothe him. They still do shelter him. And that may sound like, well, of course they do, but they don't have to. They could beam him down to the planet and say, here you go. They could give him a shuttle and kick him out. They could kill him. They could beam him into space. I mean, I know that sounds like such a horrible thing to say, but really, think about this for a moment. 
Someone who is functionally their enemy has just shown up, and he is completely at their mercy, and they take care of him. They are a little bit rude to him and standoffish, but that's it. That's as far as that goes. And that's one of those underlying points of the episode. The Calamarain are willing to endanger the planet, which they probably don't care about, and the ship, which they definitely don't care about, just to kill Q, because that's how much they despise him. And again, imagine if he had picked Klingon, or Romulan, or Cardassian. And you get my point. Anywho, <clears throat> so... Getting back to what I mean by that, though, so Q and Data are fantastic together, but part of it is because Q plays the out... John Delancey, I should say, plays the outsider perfectly. He describes falling asleep with abject terror. And Picard is just like, oh, you just fell asleep. And Q's like, oh, it's terrifying. Think about that for a second. A lot of the strength of this episode, in my opinion, comes from his totally alien understanding of completely ordinary things. It, sometimes it leads to comedy, sometimes it leads to engaging stuff, like, like actual interesting stuff. Imagine if you had never had to sleep a second in your life, and then you're human. And you just start getting fatigued and tired, and you don't know what's going on, and you're... You know what it feels like to be tired, right? I, I assume you do, since you're probably human if you're watching this. Hell, even Vulcans need to sleep, or meditate. But you have no experience with that. You understand the concept of sleep, of course. You've, you've perceived it as existing. But you have never felt it before. You've never been in the first-person view of what sleep is. And then he passes out, and he's like... Oh, it's terrifying. That is actually kind of a terrifying thought, isn't it? And they hit three basic points, three very core fundamental human concepts. Fatigue, pain, and hunger. Three, three things that even if you're a, a human who can't speak any language and is in the middle of the wilds and running around naked, those three things are still human, even under those circumstances. So, you know, as, as understandable as it can get. So he goes down to engineering. And I urge you, I, I say this a lot, I know, but I urge you to rewatch the scene with uh, Data, Geordi, and Q in engineering. Geordi is as polite as he can be, but there's a clear standoffishness to him and Q. Data is polite to Q. Q is standoffish to Geordi and polite to Data. This is a recurring trend. Q, anytime someone hits him with repartee or banter or whatever, he knows exactly how to respond to that. He, he witties back. It's a wit war, right? And he's used to that. He's accustomed to that. He even flat out says this over in uh, DS9. I was hoping for some witty repartee, right? But anytime someone is actually polite or actually nice to him, he, he, you can see he just kind of stumbles for a minute, and he just says, oh, well, thank you. You know, just a simple politeness back, because he's not sure how to handle that. And basically, the only one who is consistently nice to him is Data. The only one who doesn't have the emotional baggage that everyone else does to be able to treat Q properly. And I'm going to say properly on purpose, because for all the, the niceties I can say about the crew, they go out of their way to not embrace him. And 
while he has many, many, many flaws, I still firmly believe, and this may just be my idealistic stupidity here, that there are positive qualities to Q as, a, as an entity, if we were to talk in character. Ignore John Delancey, ignore writers disagreeing with each other. I think Q has positive qualities and traits to him, which aren't helped when everyone snarks at him, or makes fun of him, or belittles him, or throws him in the brig, and you get my point. Now... Uh, and there's a lot of little cute moments. Ow? What do you say when, when you're hurt? And ow? And then Jordy and Data just look at each other. Ow! And then he says, ow! It hurts my back! Oh, I've been under a lot of stress lately. God! Ow! I think. My stomach's making noises. It's gurgling. I think I'm hungry. What do I eat? Please order something for me. And then there is this great conversation. I feel like someone really put some effort and polish into a lot of the conversations between Data and, and Q about how you decide what to eat. And I love it because they mention, uh, I have observed, this is the second time I think chocolate comes up for Troy. I have observed that uh, Deanna Troy really enjoys chocolate when she's feeling bad. You know, and chocolate, I, I cannot speak from personal experience, but I've seen it have a profound effect on She says, I want 10 chocolate sundaes. What? I'm in a really bad mood. And I'm very hungry, so I've got to do it. I'm going to take a weird segue here and talk about a game called Diablo 3, which is a PC game some of you may or may not be aware of. Um, there's a character, I'm not going to spoil anything, but there is a character in it who becomes human over the course of the events of the game, who has never been human before. And there's this idle conversation that you can get just as a background thing. It's not part of the main plot or there's no quest. It's just you can hear it when you're passing by and he says... I I don't feel quite right. I'm a little bit nauseous and whatnot. Why? Did you forget to eat again? No, no, I, I definitely did not. In fact, I made a point of make, getting all of the day's eating out of the way early. So I ate and I ate and I ate this morning until I could eat no more. That way I would be good for the rest of the day. And the other guy's just like, no, no, it doesn't work that way. I love that little touch in Diablo 3 just as much as I love the touches here. That Q is so utterly out of his element, that he can't understand why ten chocolate sundaes aren't really going to work for him. Also, side note, this is the second, I believe, of like four times they bring up the biological components of data. I only mention that because that biological thing, for those of you not aware, was invented to explain why Brent Spiner ages. That's it. That's, that's the purpose in it existing. I always found that to be ridiculous, and frankly, I just headcanon it out. You can feel free to do what you want of that, but I wanted to bring it up. Anywho, <clears throat> it does bring up an interesting question of exactly how Data powers himself. You'd think he has a lot of energy to keep that body going. Maybe he has like some kind of super fusion thing, right? This is, this is the early 90s. They were big on fusion back then. Anywho, <clears throat> so he gets 10 chocolate sundaes. Then Guinan comes in and proves my point earlier. For all the, the bitterness and all the, the rudeness and all of the uh-huh or throwing him in the brig, that's nothing. That is a joke compared to Guinan who stabs him in the hand with a fork. And when he is desperately begging for help, just kind of makes fun of him for it. That's kind of my point. And the Calamarine make that point too, the fact that they're willing to actively kill him in order to get back at him, right? I mention this because... It's funny in its own horrible way. They try to get across this idea of... They try to get across this idea of humans are special, but I don't think they did it on purpose. I really don't. 
I think they were just trying to showcase that these are generally good people. It might not, it's probably not even humans in general. It's just the crew of the Enterprise, the superheroes. They are the protagonists of the show. And showing them in this stark contrast between, fine, you've tormented us and hurt us in the past, but whatever, to, oh, Q's mortal. Die! As a nice contrast. Now... He he has this conversation with Data. I I know weird, right? But no, I'm talking about the one. So he, you know, the Calamarine hit. He goes to the ready room. He lies his face off, and he's a jackass. Let's just say that as bluntly as we can. I don't want to gloss over it because it actually bothers the crap out of me that for the way he's portrayed in most of the rep- rest of the episode, which is selfish but with decent qualities to him. Here he comes across as someone who is just an apologist for basically torture. And that's not cool. And I just, every time I see the scene with him, he's like, one person's pleasure is another creature's delight. It's like, okay. Q. How delightful was it being zapped earlier? I'm just wondering. You can tell me. How delightful was it being stabbed? That certainly seemed to be something that Guinan found to be delightful. Did you find that? De- no, then shut the hell up, you moron. God, not you guys, obviously. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Q. It's like, really, dude? You, you have a brain. It's not like you don't. Use it. So I find it amusing and and interesting that the very next scene, then, is one with him being completely honest with Data. Yeah, that's actually kind of a recurring trend. He's very open with Data. He's like, oh, I, you know, I don't... I, Data's like, you should probably try to, to find friends. And Data... And Q's response, and Delancey nails the exact performance here, is, oh, but it's so hard. And I love that. In other words, he acknowledges that there's a reason and a purpose behind that. That it's probably a good thing, and it probably should do. But God, how do I even do that? And then Data starts talking about, well, you need to learn how to work in a group. I don't, I don't work well in groups. It's, it's not a good thing. And I get the very strong impression that most Q don't work well in a group, just based on the Qs that we interact with over the years. Anywho. <clears throat> so, did I say Amanda Wallace earlier? That's a that's a wrong character. Anyways, um, so he gets off the travel lift and he goes to engineering and he 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 follows Data's advice. He just does it in the most Q way possible. All right, everyone, here's what we're gonna do. And Jordy's like, No, no, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna do this. What? But that's a waste of my talents. Yeah, well, you're gonna do it. Or you're gonna leave. Take your pick. How does he think he could do to order me around? That? And he's just so petulant about the whole thing. That I'm okay with, as much as it is him being rude and petulant. It is more in character than him being an actable, active liar about the whole torture thing earlier. He believes that he is a valuable resource. And he is right. But in order for him to be... So that is from his perspective. But in order for him to be valuable to a community, an organization, what needs to happen is he needs to prove that he can work with that organization. And that doesn't mean being in charge. It doesn't mean being the ace upon which the entire team hinges. It means playing your part. I don't want to get all communist on you, but there is a legitimate value in a cooperative, right? You know, you do this, I do this, we make this work. You know, this this tree is pretty big, but if we both grab one hand of this saw, we can make this happen a lot easier due to our cooperation, right? And that brings up the idea of selfishness. So the Calamarine 
push the Enterprise into the atmosphere, which is very smart, because they have to push a lot of their energy and resources and attention into getting the ship fine and getting it out of the atmosphere, which means they can't maintain the defenses, which means the Calamarine can take Q. Very smart approach to take, and I, I like that little touch. I don't think even anyone even really calls it out, per se. Then they save him. Data's down, and Q's like, oh, he'll be fine, everything's fine, and Picard throws in the riot act. There's also a line where Geordi says, Commander, he's not worth it. That's an interesting line. And that line is something that's been speculated on for years. I know some people take umbrage to that because that's Geordi saying that. And one of Geordi's traits is that he's kind of a, you know, a friendly guy. I mean, we saw this in The Enemy where being held at gunpoint by Romulan, he was still joking and, and kind of forming a bond with the guy, right? But he won't do this with Q, for whatever reason. However, the idea has been posited by many people over the years. I, I know Sci-Fi Debris mentioned this. Uh, a friend of mine that I'm not going to name. I don't name names on my show. A friend of mine, we'll call him Bob and Bob 2 and Bobina. Real people. It's <laughs> just fake names. Have all brought up the idea to me in conversations that this was all part of the test that this was something that the Q Continuum, or Q himself, set up. I like to think it was the Continuum. All right. Q, you say these humans are so special and so wonderful, and they've got so much of your attention. You even pushed the Borg into their path. What the hell were you doing? We do not provoke the Borg, okay? Now listen, if you think the humans are so great, we're going to set things up for them. We're going to set this little situation, this dilemma, and then we're going to put you there. And you can go, they might not have told Q this, but you know, we'll, we'll put, so let's assume they're talking to each other. You know, we'll put Q there. He thinks they're so great. He thinks they're so special. We'll just dump Q on their laps, and we'll make sure that that moon is out of orbit, and we'll make sure the Calamarine are in the area. And we'll see just how good these humans are when they have to protect one of their worst enemies in the face of saving millions of their own people. <laughs> now, I like that idea a lot. The idea that the Continuum set this up. Not for the reasons of proving how good humanity is, though. Because I think, this is my mind, this is pure headcanon at this point. But I like the idea that the Continuum legitimately does not understand the ideal of being a decent person. That they presume that if they dropped Q down there, at best they might torment him. And at worst, he's screwed. And the, the fact that they have, you know, they have to protect him from the Calamarine is just a clincher. I think that the Continuum does not understand the idea of protecting him so much. Of doing everything I've been talking about this whole episode. You know, we'll be rude and dismissive and ag abrasive, but we won't stab you in the hand with a fork, and we won't try to murder you, right? I don't think the Continuum understands that, and so they just assumed this is a gimme. So this will be the end of Q, so that problem to the status quo is solved. We finally fixed the, the Quinn thing, now we're fixing the Q thing. We're all good. And they get to prove humanity is not worth the trouble, and knowing how horrible the continuum is, they probably would have just been like, all right, and that's the end of humanity. Instead, they protect him, defend him, and Q himself does actively go out of his way to sacrifice himself for their sake. He insists repeatedly that he's not. But everyone involved, even in character, even ignoring headcanon, is pretty, no, no, Q is doing this because 
this is the right thing to do. He is getting out of the situation so the Calamarine can destroy him. The Enterprise will be fine. In other words, it is his first dabbing of the toe into the, into the pool of cooperation. And that's the next topic I want to talk about. He mentions being selfish. You know, Picard says, you are singularly selfish. Of course I'm selfish. Selfish has served me well. Let me, let me talk about something really quick. I, I'm going to be real with you for just a second. I am a firm believer in the philosophy of cooperation. On a, I mentioned this back in Voyager. I can't remember the name of the episode, but it's one where the Doctor goes evil, right? And Cass is still on board. This is in season two, I want to say. Um, it's a good episode. I actually like it. There's this wonderful argument she gives about how cooperation still works, even on a cellular level, even on an animal or an instinct level, about how it can benefit creatures and entities. I liked that because I agree with that idea, that two people working together is better than two people fighting against each other. Now, competitiveness has its point and its purpose, and there's nothing wrong with you know some kind of pseudo-Darwinian thing where people are trying to push against each other in order to work towards a greater goal. That's fine, as long as you don't take it to an extreme like the Sith Empire did in Tor, right? But I've always thought that cooperation was for lack of a better way to put it, a, a constant, a, a fundamental constant, right up there with gravity. But that constant is predicated on the idea that we are finite. If I can do anything, cooperation loses purpose for me, right? I no longer need to cooperate. I might not even want to cooperate, because what would be the point? Hey, could you bring me that? Or, hey, you want to... You know, we'll go back to my tree thing. Here, let's saw this tree. Well, okay, there, the tree's sawed. I didn't need the other guy or girl or whatever. What's the point? My point is, I feel like the continuum, and especially Q himself, have literally culturally evolved to the point of being... Mutated would be better. Culturally mutated to the point of being singularly selfish. And that Quinn was probably one of the first cues in a long time who understood the concepts of not being selfish. And I know that sounds so weird to say it that way, but again, put yourself in this completely alien mindset. The idea of helping someone else or taking care of someone else for some reason other than for your own enjoyment is kind of be kind of alien when you're in a status they have been in for so long, right? You don't need other people. One of the things I have spoken of so many times in real life and in my show is the idea of how easy it is to understand someone else's perspective and that that's one of the very first steps of understanding and cooperation and respect and tolerance and all that fun stuff, right? But when you're a Q, not only how do you understand someone's perspective, but why? What's the point? So I think Quinn started that ball rolling and Q is kind of on board with that as well, mostly because of Quinn. And that Q is just very beginning dabbling his, his toe into the ideas that other beings have value other than to me. And he, he almost says this in the episode. I've been selfish. It served me very well my entire existence. And as soon as he said that, I'm like, but you don't have that power anymore. Now you have to do it. And I feel like this was a bit of a slap in the face to Q himself. And it's telling that the very next scene is him going into Picard's room and just laying it all out there. Credit where credit is due, Picard could have been a lot worse in that scene, but instead he actually listens. He doesn't say much in response, but he does listen. And you could tell that some of that respect that Q has for Picard is definitely on display there. And Q just lays it all out. You know, I'm not, 
I am not worth it. I, I have... I, I can't I can't repeat it. I can't do it justice. You have to see the episode. He does a wonderful job of, of very honestly, openly laying it all out to Picard. And note that this is the second person now he's done this to. He was honest and open to Data. This is the first time he has really opened up to Picard, really acknowledged that this, his worthy adversary and the person he respects, is what he has left. And then understanding the value of someone else. Like I said, this is the very beginnings of, I don't, I don't even want to call it selflessness. It's more like cooperation. But before he goes, he goes down to talk to Data. And I like to think he went to check on him, too. He was probably already committed to leaving. But seeing that Data was okay was something. And he, he gives Data that, that speech at the end. You know, you are, there are people who admire you and trust you. And for whatever it means, you are a better human than I am. And then he just leaves, gets in the shuttle, and, and bails. Now, funnily enough, this is still fully in character because obviously this attempt would have failed miserably like five separate ways. And credit to the writers of the episode. They write in like every single thing they could have done to stop that shuttle. I wonder where those writers were back in season one. Anyways, and, and so they, you know, say, so, okay, well, beam him aboard. All right, extend the shield. All right, get him in the tractor beam. All right, remote control it. Why is nothing working? You know, <laughs> come on. Then it cuts to Q and Q2. I am going to refer to him as Q2, for record. Um, I know there's some debate on that, but I always think of it as Q, Q2, uh, you know, the female Q, Quinn, and little Q. That, that's, that's how I've always kind of mentally thought of it for the different Qs. You see. Oh, and of course, What's-Her-Face, who I'm not going to say her name right now because I apparently can't remember it. I wanted to say Amanda Wallace, but that doesn't actually sound right. Maybe it's Amanda Waller? I don't know. Something like that. You know who I'm talking about. So Q2 shows up, which is played by Corbin Burnson, which is actually a really cool thing, and added some nice legitimacy to TNG back in the day. Um, especially given, you know, this is the late 80s, early 90s, uh, there were still some tensions going on at that point in time. He shows up, and he portrays this as if Q has done this selfless act, now there's going to be questions, and now there's going to be hearings, and... Obviously, the idea here, I feel like this is one of the weaker parts of the episode, because the idea is that Q is, is a better person and will now grow and learn from this. So fine, here's your powers back. I like to think of my own headcanon on this one. And of course, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on the, on the conclusion as well. It's the climax, the finale. Because he, he flat out says, you know, if, if, there's, if the continuum starts questioning, if you actually did a good act in your final things and, you know, uh, there's going to be all sorts of issues. I still think that lines up with the whole idea of the the people protecting him and willing to watch after him and caretake him in favor of the Calamarain. It still fits that little headcanon of the continuum setting this up. Nothing went as planned, right? Calamarain showed up, and then they protected him. Well, that's weird. And then Q decided to try and help them back in respect. What? Okay, that's not right. What the hell is he doing? Okay, okay, hang on, hang on. Control-Z, Control-Z. Like, I feel like that's what actually happened here on behalf of the Continuum. So it's like, okay, okay. Take your powers back. Fix it. And then he decides to be horrible to the Calamarain, which, eh, whatever. I, I, I have nothing good to say about that. I, I get the idea of revenge, but seriously, dude, chill. First thing he does is changes into his uniform. I love that. Just first thing. Obviously, what's really happening is what he did was he changed himself out of his human form and the cloth into his own form, which isn't technically wearing clothing because it's just an energy being. It's a projection. So, still, 
change the uniform, by God. And then he's got the mariachi band. Now, again, credit to Don DeLancey. He seems so happy to be back to being Q. He, his jubilance and joy is just smearing all over the screen. It's wonderful. But then he does say, you have my eternal gratitude. And funnily enough, he does pay Picard personally and humanity in general back twice in the future. I find that to be an interesting fact to consider when he mentions how grateful he is to them. And then he goes to Data, and Data's like, if you're going to try to make me human, no, 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 no. Something much worse. <laughs> I'm kidding. Something much better. He would never curse him with humanity. And then Data's laugh is like one of the best end shots of, like, a, a, t a, a Star Trek show I've seen in a long time. They ob obviously, the episode keeps going for a bit after that, and Q has to be like, don't bet on it, I'm still an evil bastard. But he did fix the moon. Now, you could argue that he fixed the moon out of gratitude. That's, I mean, Q does understand the idea of gratitude. In fact, this will come up later. But it also would be funny if my whole headcanon idea of the continuum setting up the moon thing is true. That he just, it's, oh, okay, yeah, let's just fix that. There we go, right? Let's just, let's just readjust that. Stop messing with these people. God. But um, I want to comment on the laugh. First of all, uh, Spiner does it perfectly. And in fact, his, he, the fact, the way the laugh keeps going, there's even this wonderful little side shot to Troy, who's like trying not to laugh in reaction. I wonder if that was a legitimate reaction by Marina Sirtis, or if that was something she was supposed to do in character. I'm not even sure. Because you could just see... <laughs> the, the only thing I don't like about that scene, because I always got to keep that analytical mode on, is why does Jordy ask, what are you, like, why are you laughing? That is such a stupid question in that moment. Q walks over and says, I'm going to give you a parting gift. And then Data starts laughing. Why do you think he's laughing, Jordy? <laughs> I, sorry. That's the only thing that bugs me about that. But I do like how Data is left with the memory of the sensation. And I like to think that going forward, Data will continue to have that sensation as something to... Let's you let's say as a as a grounding thing, as as a baseline. This right here is the goal. I like that idea. I have nothing more to add. I do hope you've enjoyed my terrible ruminations. Uh, I believe uh, it's it's either Christmas now or soon. I'm not sure. I'm recording these well in advance. But Merry Christmas to everyone watching this, and I hope to see you guys next time for the last episode of 2018.